Welcome back to The Melancholy Condition. I am your host, Darius Velasquez, and you're listening to Season 3. Enjoy. Here's an ad. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? When I was trying to get this podcast off the ground, I had a lot of questions. How do I record an episode? How do I get my show into all the apps that people like to listen? How do I make money from podcasts? The answer to every single one of these questions is pretty simple. Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing your podcast. And best of all, it's 100% free and ridiculously easy to use. And now, Anchor can match you with great sponsors who want to advertise on your podcast. And that means you can get paid to podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now by reading this ad. The reason why I love Anchor is just because it's easy. It's simple. It's on my phone. I don't use any exterior hardware. I don't got to do anything really, but just pick up my phone, open the Anchor app, press record, invite my guests, and boom, you have the melancholy condition. So if you want to start your podcast, do so today. Go to anchor.fm. Can you hear me? Yes, Tracy, I can hear you. Finally, I had to change devices (laughs) and everything. Okay. Uh I'm sorry about that. (laughs) Oh, no, 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 no problem. It's fine. I just need to move to another room because I'm on my tablet now. So it'll be quieter in this room. Fair enough. Fair enough. Wonderful. And yourself? I'm good. Thank you. Yes. That's That's good. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. Um, so go ahead and give me like a little bit of a rebrief, uh, talk about what you're going to be sharing within this episode, just so I can have a general idea. Um, okay. So I'm a retired nurse. Um, in 2015, I had a, um, acute depressive episode with suicide ideation, fell down the rabbit hole, wrote a book, escaping the rabbit hole, my journey through depression, And since then, I've been committed to working with children and teenagers living with mental illness uh, who are being bullied or dealing with suicidal thoughts. Interesting. Interesting. That's good. I'm glad. How's your book doing? Um, In the States, it's doing very well. In Canada, where I live, (laughs) not not so good, but that's not surprising. Is that, is that pretty typical for authors in Canada? Um, I think that the issue with Canada is that it's very much a country that follows. Uh-huh. It doesn't necessarily lead. And so it, it kind of looks to countries like Australia, uh, USA and the UK. And then if they have something that's popular or if they do something which kind of um, garners people's attention then they'll they'll jump on board okay fair enough fair enough um before we jump into the episode is there anything that you want to um tell me like as far as uh things that you're uncomfortable speaking about uh, any topics to avoid no i i'm i found that when you're working with kids, you've got to be as transparent as possible and honest. So my book is pretty raw. Go for it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I'll give us a nice little countdown and then I'll let you introduce yourself. Okay. Sounds good. All right. I'll go five, four, three, two, and one. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Melancholy Condition. I am here with Tracy Maxfield. Did I say that correctly? 
Absolutely. Awesome. Yes. Well, go ahead and introduce yourself, Tracy. Let these people know what you're all about. Originally, I was born in Wales in the United Kingdom, um, became a nurse. Uh, my childhood there was actually extremely abusive. Um, in 1987, after I completed my nurse training, I moved to Canada, where I've actually been living ever since. Um, continued to work uh, as a nurse until December 2019, when I took early retirement. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2015, um, due to four and a half years of workplace bullying, I experienced an acute depressive episode, uh, suicide attempts, and fell into an abyss of darkness, which I called the rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually ended up writing a book about my journey through depression. And since my book was released in 2018, I've actually been working with children and teenagers um, talking about mental illness, bullying, suicide, ways to promote uh, mental health. That's me in a nutshell. Nice, nice, nice. Well, we're going to peel that back layer by layer today. Um, first so off, I want to, right? Uh, I want yeah. to talk about um, your experience with uh, juveniles, right? So you get to talk right. with a lot of, you know, teenagers and yes. kids about, you know, mental health. And I feel like that that's a very, that was a topic I didn't really understand as a kid. I knew, like, especially probably when I was like 13 12 to 13 years old because I didn't have a very peaceful childhood it was really abusive and um mm-hmm. very yeah. uh back and forth I guess you would say between like yeah. peaceful moments and chaotic moments uh, you never knew what was going to happen you know what I mean I'd wake up in the middle of the night to hear uh, my little brother's dad and my mom fighting just to hear like my mom scream my name out uh, for help because they were about to start uh, getting physical. You know what I mean? Um, This is, this is, I have memories back before, like probably around five, six years old of, you know, this kind of having to interject myself into this spousal abuse. So it was always like, to this day, I still, I'm a very, very light sleeper because of that fact you know what I'm saying but I never understood I never understood how things um affected me mentally you know what I mean until I got older I never knew that you know the feelings that I had were anxiety and depression I never knew that you know being alone was dangerous for me especially when I was younger because I didn't understand what I was going through you know what I mean? I didn't understand why my thoughts were leading me certain places. So what uh, are some of the things absolutely. that, what are some of the things that you, uh, how do you address these things at least to these juveniles that you work with? I mean, the first thing that I, that I really keep emphasizing to them is that it, um, it's trying to reduce the stigma about mental illness because that is an issue that affects adults, but it really affects teenagers um, because, you know, they're in that growing up, developing, trying to find themselves and they don't want to be thought of as different or crazy or insane, which lots of people immediately think when you mention mental illness. Mm -hmm. And so I, I go back to basics. I talk about you know, how important the brain is and that we actually can't live without the brain. I I call it the engine. You know, it controls everything. And when we lose our brain, that's it. Like we're done, period. So I kind of 
try to do that first to try and destigmatize, you know. And so then it's actually it's talking about ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. And I think we're going to be hearing a lot about it lately. ACEs had always been done to reflect mental illness and chronic illness in adults as they got older. And they would look back at their childhood and say, oh, you're 65. I know why you have high blood pressure and cancer. Mm -hmm. But what some psychiatrists have now started to do is to actually look at these adverse childhood experiences and say, well, now I know why Tommy has anxiety and depression at age 11, because I look at what happened to him as he, as he, you know, grew up. And it's, it's usually um, what I'm finding and what specialists are finding is when you start talking to kids about what's happened to them and the environment and what then happens to the brain and the body in in uh, response to that, because it does call, cause changes, mm-hmm. it gets them to have a better understanding that A, it was out of their control. It's not their fault. And B, it's the brain's response to all that trauma or toxic stress and it just needs some time to start repairing itself. And this is what, you know, counseling and supports and other interventions can do. And so it's starting first by getting them not to be frightened by, you know, a diagnosis or what's going on with them that what's, you know, if it's anxiety, if it's depression, if it's obsessive compulsive, this is the response to what's happened. And I find that lots of kids, when they can understand that and make sense of that, it kind of gives them not a pass, but it, I think it takes a load off their shoulders because mm. they, they think they've brought it on or they're not strong enough or they've done something and it's a punishment. And depending on how the community where they live or even how their family and parents or parent um, views things like mental illness, that's all a history. That's a learned history that they bring with them as they're dealing with even their just their childhood, you know, their teenage hormones. I mean, it's so difficult and not making sense of what's going on with them. um, That's where it leads them down the dark path, either to drugs and alcohol or to suicide. Mm-hmm. And I think this is, I mean, we know, right, that suicide has increased significantly in teenagers. Yeah. And it's now, right, and it's now the second leading cause of death in children ages five to 24. So it's like we have five year olds dying by suicide. That, that blows my mind. Crazy. And I, and I think it's that inability to understand um, what their responses are in the current environment. Um, I think the challenge is as well. I mean, I grew up in the 60s. Um, and so I never had the degree of bullying and the social media and societal expectations that kids today yeah. have to deal with. And so uh, they're going through so much. And to even for them to try and make sense out of everything, for many of them, it is so painful and overwhelming. And it, it's, I think it's that listening to them and helping them understand what is happening. 
Are you there? Sorry. Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. Did no, I sorry. Cut no, no, no. I thought you cut off, but you said un- having them understand what is happening. How, how, what are some yeah. of the steps? Sorry. Um, just cause I've had in the past where, you know, it'll stop and get real quiet and it's never been because the person had to stop talking. It's always been a connection issue. So okay. just, <laughs> no, but you're perfectly fine. I heard that. Um, what are some of the things that you do to kind of, I know, I know with, you know, especially with younger kids, right. You can't tell mm-hmm. them, Hey, are you feeling anxious and responsible for your parents' divorce? You know what I mean? So how are the things right. that you uh, get these micro aggressions, I guess you could say, out of these? Like, how, how do you translate them without asking them directly? You know what I mean? Because I feel like with, oh, there's a lot oh, of time absolutely. You- Yes. And you know what I found is with kids regardless of their age, young, or if they, you know, just approaching adulthood. Um, emotions is something that they really are not transparent about. Mm-hmm. Um, usually it's their actions and their behaviors are expressing what the pain is or what the hurt is. Okay. And it's, it's actually sitting down with them um, one-on-one and it's it, it's just you you get them to tell a story and so it's you know say for example you've got a child that is extremely anxious and getting panic attacks because his parents have now divorced mm-hmm. and for some reason he attributes it because he was you know he was always leaving his toys around or something and never cleaned up and mum was really mad and then dad would get mad and then all of a sudden the family's broken apart and it's kind of it's sitting down and um as you know it's lead it's asking them so who do you live with and then it goes into so mom and dad don't live together now then you go into um i bet that made you feel really sad mm-hmm. scared and, and you give them a word and kids are really good because they'll either say no i wasn't sad but i was angry or um i i felt oh i was guilty they'll they usually will introduce a word that you can then continue the conversation which will lead you around to the stage where you can say to them you know sometimes you know mummy and daddies they argue and they don't get on but it's not anything that you've done and mm-hmm. it's kind of helping them understand and take away that guilt and depending on the age and the education level obviously there's different strategies but usually um the best method of expression for any kid is non-verbal so yeah, you look at their eye contact, you look at their, you know, the way their body is positioned, what's said, not being said, if they clench their fists, but also get them to try and express themselves. I'm a huge advocate of expressing themselves in music or writing or art or poetry um, or building, because that will translate into what they're going through. Okay. And Asking them to explain, for example, if they've done a drawing and it's really dark mm-hmm. and you can't see a shape of a person and you ask them to tell you what it's about, that starts opening the door. Mm-hmm. Interesting. To, right? To mm-hmm. go in, 
a little deeper into their emotions um, without you sitting like, you know, when we go as an adult, we go and see a psychiatrist or a psychologist and they'll say to you, how are you? How are you feeling? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And we've been conditioned. Kids don't. Okay, so I think I think that time you had definitely cut out. Um, oh. You left. Uh, the last thing I heard was we have been conditioned. OK, so sorry. So we have been. Okay? Yeah. Okay, so we have been conditioned to, well, most of us have, um, to express our emotions. So if yeah. you, you know, so you would say to the psychiatrist or the psychologist, um, well, I'm angry. I'm really, you know, I'm frustrated. Most mm. kids don't even understand the meanings behind those words of yeah. anxiety, you know, and... Another thing with kids is that you would ask how it makes them feel, you know, do, do they, can they feel their heart beating fast? You know, mm-hmm. do, do their palms get all sticky and wet? And that, as they tell you things, um, then you can start discerning, is it anxiety? Is it like an obsessive compulsive or is it more a depression? What exactly is going on with them? Because yes, kid, they don't, they don't present as maybe you and I would with yeah. with a depression. You know, depression in kids is, comes across as more withdrawal and sullen. And, you know, p- parents may perceive it as being rude and difficult and going through a stage when it's them trying to make sense of why they're in so much pain and just want to disappear. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So... It's very, it's, it's cool to be able to hear this, um, I guess, from a perspective from someone that works with kids, just because I remember, you know, as going through grade school, uh, whenever I was younger, there was a lot of family events that happened that um, put me through counseling. Uh, they had actually, you know, taken me out of class. It was randomly, it was probably like my third or fourth grade year where they had taken me out of class and I just suddenly had to start talking to this guy and um, right. I, I didn't too often share a lot because I didn't know who this person was. He was just a stranger to me. Right. Of and you know, course, he wanted to be friendly and, but to me, I just, I was real defensive as a kid. And I, I remember, you know, feeling oftentimes like as if I was being tricked because I didn't like telling people, you know, you know, my dad, whenever he gets mad, beats the crap out of me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I often remember, like, of course, you know, growing, getting older now, I'm comfortable with therapy, just because I feel like there's a lot of things that I still need answered. Um, So like, I'll go, I comfortably go to therapy now. But I just remember as a kid, like, having to go to this room, or it was quiet, it was cold, and I have to look this person in the eye and, you know, answer all these like silly questions. To me, they were always just silly, but they were leading questions. Like, like you said, you know, they were like, Hey, how are you feeling today? Or, you know, how was your day at home? What'd you do after school? You know, things like that. And, you know, I, I just remember like the times whenever, you know, you would lead into conversation and then, you know, simple conversation about my day 
suddenly became conversation about how last month, you know, I was at my grandma's house and my dad didn't like the way I said something. So he like kicked me and started punching yeah. me and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I just remember yeah. as a kid, like I was very uncomfortable. Like, of course, you know, I would revisiting those moments as a child, I would break down and start crying. And the therapist, you know, he'd be like, no, you're fine. You're okay. You know, you're in a safe place. He'd let me know that he's not there to judge me. But at the same time, like at the very end of the session, I would feel betrayed because I was sitting there and I'm just like, I don't, why did I tell this person that information? Why did oh, no, I just I say, have, you know what I mean? A hundred percent agree. And this is, I mean, this is actually which started me on this path because um, after my book was released, I was invited to go to a school uh-huh. to talk to some teenagers, 15 years old, in their English class. And I'd actually been asked to go and read excerpts of my book because I used imagery to convey emotions, like my, mm. when my brain um, felt like an erupting volcano. And so when I went, I actually, in my book, I have lots of illustrations. Um, and the purpose was words are not necessary. You just look at the illustration and you know exactly the emotion I was feeling that day. And I displayed them all behind me in the room. And as I was putting them up, I could immediately hear the tone in the classroom change. And I could hear the kids whispering to one another, that's how I feel. And that's what my mom says she feels like. And we didn't, eat, we didn't have an English class. It ended up, they wanted to ask me questions about depression and bullying and suicide. Mm-hmm. And two weeks later, I returned for their all-day human library. And it was like the form of career day. And they'd asked me to sit at a table and be the new author publisher, how to write a book. And the kids had to sign up two weeks ahead of time to secure a place at each table. And at 8.30 in the morning, the first group came in. So these now 11 to 15-year-olds, there was about 10 of them, sat at my table. And I started talking about how to write a book. And they were looking at one another like, what are you talking about? And I thought, hmm, something's not right here. So I stopped and I said, you're looking at each other. You seem quite confused. Um, Did you sign up for my table? And they said, yes. And I said, could you tell me why you signed up? And they said, we heard about you from English class. You're the lady who escaped the rabbit hole. And we want you to we want you to tell us how we did how you did it, and so began. Th- every thirty minutes for every thirty minutes for eight hours, I had groups of teenagers come in to talk to me about mental illness and bullying and suicide and what could they do and who could they help and where to go, mm-hmm. and. at the end of the day, it was 63 kids, 63 kids confided in me. And the school counselor was absolutely furious. And she (laughs) said, right, and she came to me and she goes, it was not your job to counsel them. And I said, I wasn't counseling them. They came and shared something very personal and they were hurting and they needed to talk to someone. Mm -hmm. And she there was one boy in particular, he was 13 years old, and he he ended up sobbing in my arms. 
and said to me, I've been in the rabbit hole for seven years. When will I escape? And I spent about 20 minutes with him. And she, she said to me, I don't know why you wasted your time with him. He's a lost cause. That was a school counselor telling me about a 13-year-old boy with major depressive disorder that he was a lost cause. Yeah. And I was, I was so angry. But when I got home, I was telling a doctor friend and he said, have you thought, why did these kids come and talk, tell you all about their, you know, what was going on in them? And I was like, no. And he said, because they trust you. You've been there. And I think that's the, with kids, that is the difference. Very few of them will open up to anyone unless they feel there's a, there's um, a relationship of trust. Yeah. And also that you know what they're going through. And I know I've seen this. So many of them refuse to go to counseling or to go and talk to someone because they'll say they won't get it. They won't understand. And that's part of what I'm doing is trying to educate teachers and parents and family so they can open the communication and start asking those questions so they can work with their kids and then get them help. It's that, like that transition stepping stone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I hear you. Absolutely. I mean, um, I, I too suffered horrendous abuse as a child and was trying to make sense of everything that happened. And if they'd ever sat me in front of a counselor, I probably, for fear of what would happen if I opened my mouth, I wouldn't have said a word. Yeah. And so I think um, things are going to have to start to change because a trusted adult could be the high school coach or the teacher, and they have to have the wherewithal to know how to help guide this person and then help them get medical help but it it is it's hugely challenging and um, I know in New York they've actually started teaching mental health in the classroom where they're going through mental health and illnesses and suicide with the kids so they start to get an understanding of what's going on and how they can help themselves and help others and I think that's it, it, it's it's so necessary that we we start to introduce this with all kids yeah that's a really big step in the right direction you know oh absolutely huge huge because it'll empower them i mean my philosophy with my work is engage educate empower if we engage the kids and we give them some education because they all want to be able to take control of their lives yeah. and regardless of what age they are. But if we give them the the information and the tools, that empowers them that they can then either seek help or work with someone so they can get better or get help or go to counseling. Um, But we have to start with the kids because if you just take... Sorry? Sorry, the service had disconnected. You said they can either seek help or... Oh, it'll enable them to seek help or it will empower them that they could help someone else or even that they can kind of start doing some of the strategies themselves to make, to make their lives better. Absolutely. And that's really good. 
Now, you have a book. What kind of enabled you to write a book about your experiences? Because I know a lot of people that, you know, there's a vast majority of individuals that go through similar experiences. And not everybody says, I want to talk about this. You know what I mean? Not everybody says, I'm going to write a book about it and let everybody know everything that I've been through. Um, So as a nurse, um, I thought I knew everything about depression. Um, So when I actually, on Mm. August 20th, 2015, when I fell down the rabbit hole, um, I didn't recognize that I'd had that it was a depressive episode because it was the, the mental, emotional, but also the physical effects that I, that I was going through. And then when I attempted suicide two days later, I knew I was in deep doo-doo. Um, mm. So when my doctor explained, like, you've had an acute depressive episode, she likened it to my brain being fractured into like a gazillion pieces. And that healing was going to take a long time. And so I started therapy. I saw a psychologist every single week. And then it went to two weeks. And every time I would go and say, give me a date. When am I going to get better? Because I, you know, I'd read everything. And I was like, this doesn't make sense. You know, it's now eight months in. Why am I still suicidal? Why yeah. am I not getting better? And he said, you've gone through such trauma that it's going to take time. You have to be patient. And... At the same time, I forced myself to go out every day and I'm a Brit. And in Britain, we always, you've got to put on your best appearance, right? It's this this false face. And when I would meet people and they would ask me what was going on, I would be very honest and tell them. And they would look at me and say, you can't have depression. You're out and about. Or you can't have depression. You look too good. And I just wanted to scream at them and say, you have no idea. I want to, I wanted to rip my, my scalp off and show them my brain. And I, yeah. I kept going to the to therapy and saying, I'm getting so angry. And he said, why don't you start a blog and invite these people? Because lots of them were doctors and nurses and social workers. I said, uh-huh. invite them to read the blog and tell them how you really feel and what is it like? And so that's, so as soon as I actually did the first entry, the response was, oh my God, I had no idea this is what depression was about. And this was coming from doctors that had treated people for for decades. And, you know, yeah. then there would be a comment like, you need to write a book. And I, I, I ignored it, but I, but what I found was um, writing was very cathartic. It allowed me mm-hmm. to express myself when I decided if I wanted to give people a real understanding of depression, I had to be raw and honest and tell them the, in the, my book, I say the good, the bad, the ugly. And the comments kept coming more and more and more. This has got to be in a book. I had no idea this was what it was like. You need to put this in a book. And so finally, um, I think the blog started in the December, in the June um, I contacted uh, an editor who had also written our own books in Montreal, Canada, and said, hey, I've written a blog. People say it should be a book. Do you think it's book worthy? Mm-hmm. And a couple of hours later, she phoned me and said, I've got you a publisher in Toronto. You need to write the book. And so here I am. Um, I felt that um, it, in order for people to 
truly understand what depression and suicide is like and anxiety, PTSD, then you have to describe it in detail. You know, what it does to you as a person, what it does to you in, you know, in your home environment. And I was I was initially scared when I had to press that button for the book to be the final, you know, um, document for it to be published. But I thought mm. the only way, you know, I have to be honest because I can't sugarcoat it because I wanted to help people. I want pe- I, I wanted those with depression who read it to know that they were not alone, that they were never alone, that they weren't the only ones. Because when, you, when you're that bad, you actually think you're the only one and no one else can be going through this. And I just, and I also wanted it to be um, some hope because I got through the rabbit hole, I escaped the rabbit hole and I share how I did it in my book. But I wanted also to give them that, that hope that it, it does get better. It really does. Cause I've been there. Um, and that really, um, as I said, it was an unexpected route that I never, ever, even today, I still say it's surreal. Everything that happened 